Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler. And today we're talking to Jonathan Coley about his book, Gay on God's Campus, Mobilizing for LGBT Equality at Christian Colleges and Universities, and Life After the Book Came Out. Welcome to the show, Dr. Coley. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad you're here and we get to talk about your book and what's happened since. It came out about four years ago, but it's still a new book and it's timely for us. But before we dive into that, will you please tell us about yourself? Sure. Um, So as you mentioned, I'm uh, Jonathan Coley. I'm an associate professor of sociology at Oklahoma State University. Um, I myself uh, attended a Christian university, Samford University, um, as an undergraduate and was involved in starting an LGBTQ student group there, um, which piqued my interest, of course, in this broader topic, um, which I went on to study in more depth in graduate school when I was at Vanderbilt. Um, and I've been at Oklahoma State University now for five years um, since the book has come out. I've um, also been engaged in different kinds of, um, yeah, public outreach and even advocacy to try to um, address ongoing issues facing LGBTQ students at Christian colleges and universities. I want to break that down a little bit. Um, I'm always curious about when people are in high school and they're looking ahead and thinking about where they're going to end up in life. Can you take us back to that? And did you know you wanted to be a professor? Did you know where you wanted to go to college and why? Take us back to how you got from there to here. Oh, gosh, that's a great question. (laughs) Um, So uh, in high school, um, I you know, certainly had no idea what sociology was. Um, I had an interest in writing. Um, I was involved in um, running online websites, uh, writing for the school newspaper. Um, And so I had a a potential interest in going into journalism. Um, I also had a a pretty deep interest in politics that was <laughs> developing um, even before I had the opportunity to vote. Um, and so that actually inspired my um, my major in college, which was political science. Um, but um, sociology is something I didn't really discover until I was a, really a, a junior in college, I think. Um, and honestly, I think what made me want to be a professor is that um, when I was um, um, at Samford, starting an LGBTQ student group there, um, my sociology professors are the ones who very bravely agreed to be advisors to the organization um, and um, really stuck their neck out. One of them was not tenured um, at the university um, and very easily could have uh, risked her um, and promotion and and tenure by being an advisor to the to the organization, but just 
really the example that my sociology professors set by, um, you know, working with me to try to create a better environment for LGBTQ students at Christian universities is what I think inspired me to be a professor myself. When you chose that school, did you feel like it would be a good fit for you? Was it geographically desirable? What sent you there? I had been um, in Christian schooling my entire life. Um, So in elementary, middle, and high school, I went to a a high school called Evangelical Christian School in Memphis, Tennessee. And um, when I was looking at colleges and universities, my parents were certainly encouraging me to continue on in Christian education. My brother had, um, my brother's four years older than me, and he actually um, also attended Stanford University where I went for undergrad. Uh, He seemed to really enjoy it. Uh, It was a beautiful campus. Um, it was not too close to home. <laughs> uh, it was four hours away from home, but not too far away from home either, where I could still get home occasionally. So it checked a number of boxes, I guess, for me, um, um, which is why I attended the school. The book Gay on God's Campus is not autobiographical, but you do tell us in the book that it was inspired by some of your own experiences, and you do thank um, some of your professors for their encouragement and support of you. Can you tell us a little bit about how your own experience inspired the topic for this book? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when I you know, first enrolled at Stanford, I was not out as a gay man. Um, I... Um, uh, probably didn't have much room to be out my first year, even if I had wanted to at Stanford University, because the school actually had a ban on homosexual acts um, and homosexual behavior uh, in their student handbook. And during my first year at Stanford, my second semester there, there was an organization called Soul Force um, that was going on equality rides to different Christian colleges and universities across the country that had discriminatory policies toward LGBTQ students. And um, that's what they generally did was they would contact a school and say, hey, we're coming. We want to hold events. We want to meet with students. Um, We want to protest your policies. Some schools wouldn't allow them onto their campus uh, and they would be arrested for trespassing. Um, But Stanford, I guess, to its credit, um, allowed the organization to come on the campus for several days. And they held town halls. They spoke in um, at least one of my classes and um, drew attention to some of these um, discriminatory policies that Stanford had. And after my first year at Stanford, um, Stanford University decided to drop its ban on, a, on on homosexual acts or homosexual behavior from its student handbook. I mean, it was a it was a ban that was listed alongside um, similar bans on rape and incest and carried penalties of suspension um, and possible expulsion from the school. It was a very strict policy, but they decided to change it to a just kind of a generic ban on heterosexual slash homosexual intercourse is how I think it was um, uh, worded after my first year in, in student's handbook, uh, Samford student handbook. And so I think I had... I came out um, to friends my next year at Samford, um, but um, it wasn't really until my senior year that I felt, you know, the courage to actually try to start up an organization on campus. I was still pretty confident that um, 
a group like that wouldn't be approved by Sanford's board of trustees and administrators. Um, and so th that had held me back for a while, but um, my professors at Sanford and I came up with a plan to, during my senior year, to make an LGBTQ student group that was a um, basically a subcommittee of an already existing organization. Um, and so our GSA, um, our Gay Straight Alliance or Gender and Sexualities Alliance was a subcommittee of Sanford Sociology Club during my senior year that allowed us to um, start organizing activities and events, bringing in speakers, um, holding a day of silence on campus, and almost for the very first time, trying to create a, a visible um, kind of outlet for LGBTQ students on Sanford's campus. In our pre-interview communications, you said that you're still connected with some of those programs at Sanford and that there's been protests against a university decision to kick pro-LGBTQ Christian ministries off its campus. Can you update us about what's going on there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, so after I graduated at Sanford, I think that um, that um, Gaysphere Alliance that I had started as a subcommittee of uh, the Sociology Club lasted about another year or two, but then kind of fizzled out. Um, there was another group that um, formed um, a few years later called Samford Together um, that did seek official independent recognition um, from the school. And um, I think the group received approval from the student government, from the faculty senate, and it went all the way up to the, the president at the time, Andrew Westmoreland. And he recorded a video saying, I've decided not to bring up um, this LGBTQ group for approval um, before the board of trustees. Um, I don't think it would get approved, and I don't think Stanford's ready for this kind of LGBTQ student group. Um, but he announced in the same video that um, that that same day, um, Samford was going to start distancing itself from the Alabama Baptist Convention with which it was associated. And so they announced that they were basically going to stop taking money from the Alabama Baptist Convention. People thought that maybe the president had this longer vision of trying to become yeah, a more independent Christian university and be able to eventually come to a place um, that had an LGBTQ student group. Um, that president stepped down um, just a couple of years ago, and we got a new president, uh, Beck Taylor, who had been president um, of a actually Presbyterian Church USA college up in uh, Washington State. And so if you know anything about the Presbyterian Church USA, they're a fairly LGBTQ inclusive denomination. Um, oddly enough, the school he was president of didn't have a fully inclusive kind of non-discrimination policies, but they did have an LGBTQ student group. And so when he came here, um, people were pretty optimistic. They thought that there was a, a good chance that this new president would be um, potentially open to an LGBTQ student group. Um, but um, interestingly, yeah, just a few weeks ago, there was an episode where the president decided to basically 
not allow some Christian denominations like the Episcopal Church and the Presbyterian Church USA um, to have ministries on campus um, anymore because they had LGBTQ inclusive policies. I mean, the Episcopal Church had had a presence on Sanford's campus for decades, but he said that um, Sanford has these historic values um, related to marriage and sexuality. And um, he wants to uphold them as president, so he's not going to allow LGBTQ inclusive denominations on campus. And it, to me, it, it feels like Sanford is taking some huge steps backwards. Uh, th there was a lot of optimism about potential for change at, at Sanford, but um, yeah, the president has really dug in and, and is wanting to take the, the school in a different direction, I think. And so I've been involved in a alumni group since I've graduated from Sanford that is trying to bring about LGBTQ inclusion um, on campus. It's called Safe Sanford. We've been organizing protests um, and, and other kinds of um, activities to raise awareness about about what's going on at Sanford. But I think it's a, there's a lot of work to do to, to to bring about some major changes at that school. You also let me know that you've been closely following ongoing lawsuits about LGBTQ issues at a number of religious universities in the United States. While we have been talking about one in particular, unfortunately, they're not unique in this. Yeah, absolutely. So there's an organization called the Religious Exemptions Accountability Project um, that has filed a, a federal lawsuit against the U.S. Department of Education. And basically what they're trying to do is say that, so, so right now the U.S. Department of Education allows discriminatory Christian colleges and universities to receive federal student loan money um, despite their discriminatory policies. They give discriminatory schools waivers from Title IX policies that would otherwise prohibit schools from discriminating against LGBTQ students. And what they're trying to do is say that if Christian colleges and universities are being subsidized by the federal government and receiving a lot of loan money, then they should not be able to discriminate. Um, if they, if they want to discriminate, that's okay, um, but they should not be receiving any government support. They're actually building on a um, on precedent. Um, a few decades ago, the U.S. Supreme Court um, told Bob Jones University that as long as it was receiving student loan money, federal money, it should not be able to discriminate against students of color. Because um, Bob Jones at the time had said its Christian values led it to discriminate against black students in particular. But um, the Supreme Court said that they could no longer do that. And so they're, they're trying to, um, they're trying to challenge the U.S. Department of Education to, to, um, implement the same policies um, with regard to schools that discriminate against LGBTQ students. Um, and I'm actually a, an expert witness for that um, lawsuit. So um, I wrote some expert testimony uh, for um, an initial preliminary injunction hearing um, in Oregon last year, and they're still awaiting the outcome of that kind of initial hearing. Um, but it's a, it's a lawsuit that I'm certainly happy to support um, in, uh, in the form of providing my expert testimony. You talked about how the school that you went to and the program that you'd founded there, things have sort of fallen apart. They've taken steps backwards. Are you seeing that repeated on other campuses? 
Well, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, about 10 years ago in 2013, I put together a database of all um, Christian colleges and universities in the United States. There's nearly 700. And I went to every school's website, dug into their student handbooks, dug into their um, policy statements, and recorded information about which ones had LGBTQ student groups, which ones had non-discrimination policies inclusive of sexual orientation and gender identity, and then which ones had these discriminatory policies, um, uh, often these bans on homosexual acts and homosexual behavior. And um, back in 2013, um, I found that 55% of schools had non-discrimination statements inclusive of sexual orientation. 45% had LGBTQ student groups. Um, but nearly a third, 31%, had these student handbook bans on homosexual acts and homosexual behavior. Also, t- only 10% at the time had non-discrimination policies inclusive of gender identity and gender expression. Um, Fast forward uh, to just this past summer, I updated that database um, and I found some some good news. So now instead of 55%, uh, closer to about 62% of schools um, have non-discrimination policies inclusive of sexual orientation. Um, instead of 10%, now 50%, 50% of schools have non-discrimination policies inclusive of gender identity or gender expression. But um, it, the, the percent of schools with these discriminatory bans has gone down slightly. Um, it, it's now getting closer to 25%. But I found that the schools with discriminatory policies have not doubled, but tripled down really on their discriminatory policies. No longer do most of these schools have these kind of one-line bans on homosexual acts or homosexual behavior in their student handbooks. Most of the schools that have discriminatory policies, they've developed two pages worth of policies in their student handbook. Um, In a lot of these schools, like Liberty University, are saying not only can you not be LGBTQ at the school, um, identify as LGBTQ, not only can't you be in a same-sex relationship, you can't even be as a straight person or a cisgender person openly supportive of LGBTQ rights. So some of these schools actually say that if you publicly support same-sex marriage, um, for example, you can be kicked off campus. Or, or they say that if you engage in advocacy in support of LGBTQ rights on or off campus, then you can be kicked out of the school. And so, it, it, although on paper, the percent of discriminatory schools is declining, the schools that do discriminate are becoming even more discriminatory, if that makes sense. It does. And it makes me wonder how that affects students. I'm trying to figure out how to word the thoughts that are coming to me. If you're a student who's directly affected by negative language in the handbook that negates your your identity and your sexual orientation and who you are, you know the school's policy. You You know that that's their statement. In the other cases where they are acting, towards the students as though they don't tolerate this, but they are at the same time refusing to admit 
that they are intolerant. Do you have a sense of which is harder for students to manage? Um, that's a good question. Um, I guess there are challenges at both types of schools. Um, I mean, one of the one of the issues is that a lot of students enroll at Christian colleges and universities um, uncertain about their own sexual or gender identities, right? Uh, college is a time of rapid personal development for a lot of people. Uh, you know, it certainly was for me. Um, and so, you know, sometimes people wonder why why students would um, attend these super discriminatory schools. Um, um, and oftentimes it's because they may even be in agreement with the policies at first, um, but their views change, their identities change. And um, yeah, it, students in repressive environments um, will often get kicked off campus. Um, but I think at schools like Sanford, which, you know, if you look at the student handbook today, there's not actually much that you'll encounter about guidelines for sexual behavior anymore. Um, they don't really say much about um, their policies about LGBTQ issues in the student handbook anymore. Um, and I do think that gives some students a, a false hope, including those students who may go into college um, already certain of their LGBTQ identities that they're gonna be uh, in an inclusive environment. and. Um, um, you know, the, these students often have a subpar student experience um, as a result. So I, I'm not sure I'm fully answering your question, but I think there are definitely challenges at, at both types of schools. You said you had served as an expert witness, and it sounds like this may be something that you're called to do in, in other cases. I was thinking if it's in the handbook and if they've recorded themselves saying these discriminatory things, you have more concrete evidence to prove they are discriminatory. But if they spout some DEI language and then they go about de facto discriminating against the students, it's harder to prove that they're doing what they are in fact doing. Yeah, and I think that a lot of schools, um, so a lot of schools have been applying to the U.S. Department of Education for formal waivers from Title IX requirements that would otherwise prohibit discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. Um, and the Obama administration had previously been making those exemption requests and exemption approvals public. But the Trump administration um stop that practice. Um, they, um, you know, made it clear that they were okay, um, just in general with uh, Christian colleges and universities discriminating. Um, and they stopped, you know, the, the practice of um, collecting and publicly re releasing the um, exemption requirements. And so it, it is possible, actually, for a lot of Christian colleges and universities to not even say much about um, their policies in their student handbook, and yet um, have gone to the federal government to get approval. Um, so. You talked about when you were on campus as a student, you became more aware of your identity and that this is a time that so many students are figuring out so many aspects of their own identities and that you felt comfortable coming out to some people that you know. 
when you wrote the book, in some ways, it was a very public coming out. Were you prepared for how that would feel? And how has it been since then? Um, I, it's, I'm trying to think of an answer to that question. Um, I guess I haven't, I, I certainly don't think I've experienced any kind of negative um, pushback um, about my own, you know, sexual identity. Um after the book's publication, partly because I've been working at supportive campuses um, and um, yeah, I have certainly not been working at schools um, with the kinds of policies um, that we've been talking about. So um, for me, it's been a, a very positive experience and, um, you know, I, I feel really fortunate to be in the position I'm in of, of having a, an out-tenure job at a, at a university. Uh, and I'm happy to, um, you know, take any potential pushback if it means I'm contributing to, um, yeah, the potential changes at these Christian colleges and universities. When you wrote the book, um, you needed to go to different campuses. You brought your tape recorder. You interviewed students. Can you talk about that process of gaining students' trust and building conversations that would help you have the information you needed to write your book? Yeah. Um, you know, I think since I had myself been involved in starting an LGBTQ student group at Stanford University and was able to tell the students I was meeting um, about that experience, um, I, I, I think I was able to, you know, gain a lot of their trust pretty early on. Um, and so I had a pretty high response rate, um, when I would send student leaders requests to participate in the books, um, or the dissertations, um, interviews at the time. Um, what's actually more interesting is that, um, sometimes I think I, um, probably overstepped by, you know, at the beginning of interviews or when I was doing initial outreach, uh, would try to emphasize how I had been involved in LGBTQ advocacy at a Christian college or university um, because I actually ended up meeting some students who were involved in LGBTQ student groups, who were often leaders of LGBTQ student groups, who actually had pretty different views than I did on LGBTQ rights, who sometimes were pretty uncertain still about the morality of same-sex relationships, were uncertain about even if they were attracted to someone of the same sex, whether they'd ever want to be in a same-sex relationship. Um, and so I actually kind of learned to um, maybe, yeah, j just um, emphasize that at the very least in my initial conversations with students that I was interested in talking with them, no matter what kinds of views they had or w what angle um, th they were approaching LGBTQ issues um, at. Um, if that makes sense. It does. And you tell us that some of the students that you interviewed had actually come to college with a very anti-LGBTQ rights feelings, that they had been raised in it. That is what they felt their church had taught them. That's just their worldview. And it wasn't until they spent some time at college that they began to question why they were against this. And they surprised themselves. Can you talk about that sort of transformation that they went through and how that surprised them that they started in one place and ended up in another. 
Yeah. I mean, I met all, all sorts of people. Uh, again, I, I met some people who were leaders of groups and of LGBTQ groups um, that were kind of dedicated to carving out safe spaces on campus for students to talk about their views on LGBTQ issues, um, their own hopes and dreams for, you know, marriage and building a family one day, um, who, who, again, themselves were not fully supportive of LGBTQ rights, even when I talked to them. Um, and um those are pretty rare uh, cases, but they did occur. Uh, what was a little more common is what you're talking about, where students initially came to campus being very either uncertain about their views on LGBTQ issues um, or maybe even opposed to LGBTQ issues. But they had experiences where um, they they came to realization that they themselves were LGBTQ or they had roommates or uh, had developed close friendships with people who were LGBTQ and began kind of rethinking um, their previous opposition to LGBTQ rights. And some students would join the group because they were invited um, by their LGBTQ friends um, and they just kind of wanted to hear more about LGBTQ issues. And um, uh, joining an LGBTQ group often pushed them further along in their their personal transformations to being full, either allies of the LGBTQ community or um, help them come out as, as LGBTQ themselves. One thing that comes through to me in the book and some of the questions that you had for yourself as you wrote it is sort of how do we approach the idea of activists and what categories have we assumed they were in and what have we lump together sort of a group identity for everyone who participates in a certain kind of activism. And you really ended up unpacking that with your research. Um, so you had identified three different kinds of groups who participated um, in the LGBT groups that you studied. One you called politicized participants. The second group was religious participants. And the third was the LGBT participants. Can you talk about how you identified these three groups and why you want, when we look at activists, for us to have a more curious and broad approach to how we see the identities of the activists themselves? Sure. Yeah. When I um, began talking to students um, at Christian college and universities about why they joined um, LGBTQ groups, um, I often heard people emphasizing uh, something about their own personal identity. Um, some students uh, actually happen to be heterosexual and cisgender. I talked to quite a few students at these schools who are heterosexual or cisgender, but joined the groups because of some deeply held political beliefs that they had. Um, and a lot of these students were uh, people who were very passionate about social justice, they often were members of other social justice organizations on their campus, and it was it kind of felt natural for them to get involved in movements for um, social justice for LGBTQ people on their campus. Um, and those are the kind of the people we often think about when we think of who would join, you know, LGBTQ activist groups. It's people who just identify. Uh, strongly with social justice values and and call themselves activists. But um, I also talked to people who said they joined the group, you know, um, not because they were um, super passionate about 
social justice, not because they really had very strong political views at all, but just because they happen to be LGBTQ and they wanted to meet people like themselves on campus and uh, be able to talk about issues they were going through uh, in a safe space. Um, so those are LGBTQ participants that I talked to who, who were actually kind of the majority of the participants in these activist groups. Um, I, I think that can kind of challenge our maybe preconceptions we have about who joins um, activist groups, this finding that not everyone even has very strong political identities or, or political values. And then I, yeah, I talked to people who we kind of already been talking about who joined the group um, really because they were deeply religious um, and often deeply conservative and had questions about LGBTQ rights and the morality of same-sex relationships or transgender identities. And they just wanted to join a group where they could talk about their, what, yeah, what they were kind of struggling with, the, the questions they had um, about, about LGBTQ rights. And, and they kind of, in those cases, kind of stumbled into advocacy. Um, like you mentioned before, they kind of surprised themselves by undergoing a transformation and becoming activists on their campuses. Uh, yeah, yeah, and those also aren't the kind of people we normally think of when we think of activists. One of the things that you also mentioned towards the end of the book is that there's sometimes an assumption that if someone becomes an activist, they stay one in very visible, tangible ways. And the people that you studied didn't necessarily express an ongoing desire to organize groups or to stay in them, partly because the group they were part of was tied to their own campus. And when you graduate, you you move on to a, a different location in your life. Um, you yourself, however, remained an activist. Can you talk about some of the nuances that you found that just because someone doesn't stay formally visible as an activist does not mean they've lost interest in something, but that their life has moved in different ways? Yeah, well, what part of what I'm trying to do in the book is to expand our notion about what it means to engage in activism. So, you know, we just talked about how the people who join activist groups don't always fit our stereotypical notion of activists. But I found that the groups they joined um, were all committed to bringing about social change. And so if what it means to be an activist group is um, you're in a group that is working towards social change, um, all of the LGBTQ groups I, I, I studied could be called activist groups, but only some looked like um, uh, the social movement organizations that scholars in my subfield of social movement studies often talk about. Only some of the LGBTQ groups looked like groups that held protests, rallies, sit-ins, and demonstrations on their campuses in an effort to bring about policy change. Um, instead, other LGBTQ groups on these campuses were bringing about social change through educational efforts. So they were holding movie showings or lectures on campus in an effort to educate the broader community about LGBTQ rights issues and change hearts and minds. Uh, educational groups would you know, hold safe zone trainings to yeah, just teach people about LGBTQ issues. And then other groups that I call activist groups, because I also think they bring about social change, um, are what I call in the book solidarity groups, or what people probably more commonly call affinity groups. And these are groups that are just trying to build out, carve out a safe space on campus for people to meet each other and support each other in their life journeys, assist each other in the coming out processes, assist each other in 
speaking up when they hear negative things said about LGBTQ people. Um, and I, I think that's also a group that is a type of group that's bringing about social change because we know that so many of the so much of so many people in our society have changed their views about LGBTQ issues just because of conversations they've been having with family members and friends because a loved one had come out to them. Um, and um, so, yeah, I, part of what I'm trying to do with the book is just expand our notion of what it means to be an activist group. And you're right. Only some of the participants who I talked to persisted in the stereotypical forms of activism after they graduated from campus. Like only some of the people um, I talked to would be involved in protests or um, explicitly political organizations after they left campus. But I, I still would say that all of the participants or almost all of the participants were engaged in efforts to bring about social change kind of in their own ways after they graduated from campus, because some people were pursuing work like teaching or counseling or social work where they could try to, yeah, again, change people's minds about LGBTQ, LGBTQ issues through education. Uh, and other people were, after they graduated, um, just being bolder about talking about their own sexual identities or gender identities with family members and friends and thus contributing to, to social change in that way. Um, so, yeah, you're right that only some were in, engaged in very formal kind of social justice um, activism uh, based organizations after college. But I think all of the people who I talked to had been changed by their experiences, if that makes sense, um, including in ways that are contributing to, to social change. You introduce us to several different people in the book, and I'm assuming because these were case studies, you may have changed their name. Um, but one was Damon. Can you tell us about what you learned from your interviews with Damon? Yeah. Um, yeah, I do talk about Damon a lot. Um, you know, he was someone who was involved in an LGBTQ group at Loyola University, um, which had, again, what I call a solidarity or affinity group. It was a, a group that was basically organizing social activities for LGBTQ people on campus and also holding kind of confidential support sessions for LGBTQ students on campus. Um, he had never been involved in an LGBTQ group before he came to college, but he joined um, that LGBTQ group at Loyola. And um, yeah, he, he talks about just going through a, a, an enormous personal transformation um, when he joined the group. He talked about how uh, when he went home, um, he, he started talking about LGBTQ issues around the dinner table with his family members. Um, that's not something he would have done before. Um, when he was in his dorm room, uh, he would be watching TV shows with friends and all of a sudden start long, deep conversations about queer theory, um, something he wouldn't have done before. Um, and, um, you know, he began making choices in his personal life um, about um, attending LGBTQ inclusive churches uh, and doing so with his boyfriend. Um, and so just being in the group um, surrounded by other LGBTQ people, um, gaining kind of a personal confidence and, and, and talking about his own identity 
um, he he says he's yeah he began to make very different kind of choices in his in his life. Um, again, not not the kind that we normally uh, associate with activism. He isn't joining. Uh, to my knowledge, he didn't join um, you know um, an activist group that organized protests after graduation, but he's still contributing to social change uh, in the sense that he's engaging in very important conversations about LGBTQ rights that are potentially changing people's hearts and minds. He was someone who the changes were happening within him, but he hadn't named them yet. It was when his friends, when it was other students in class started saying, you know, Damon, you're the activist. Yeah. Yeah. That he said, no, I'm not. And then after a video, he's like, oh, wait, I think I am. Yeah, that's exactly right. And he said he underwent the slow realization where um, he, he said, you know, he had never thought his opinions were really valid before, worth talking about before. But being in the group, he just developed a strong sense of, of right and wrong. Um, and, and, yeah, this kind of a, a confidence in really kind of speaking out uh, in ways that made other people start to label him as an activist. And that was one of the things that you pointed out in different spots in the book was that these students also started changing how they spoke in class, that they started speaking up about things about gender and identity that they they wouldn't have before. And the other students noticed it. Yeah. Towards the very end, you introduce us to, uh, I believe his name is Brian. Oh, yeah. And he was. He was a freshman, I think, when you spoke with him, and he had not had any experience being an activist. But more than that, he really hadn't had much experience finding his own voice. His family of origin was not a comfortable place to try to engage in conversations where there might be difference of opinion that would erupt into a fight. Um, He perhaps was an unlikely person to end up talking to you. I think it, the way it comes across in the book, he surprised himself by by even doing that. Um, Can you tell us about him? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I talked to to Byron, uh, and yeah, you're right. All these are pseudonyms. I talked to Byron um, when he was a first semester freshman uh, in college, um, or at least in his first year in college. And I remember um, meeting him at a coffee shop, and he said um, he had just come out the week before. Um, I sat down with him um, as a bisexual man. And um, I just remember him being so shy and, and timid. Um, it, you know, his, his voice uh, barely registered on my voice recorder. It, he did not seem like the kind of person, again, who you'd normally think of as an activist. Um, but, um, you know, I kind of kept tabs with him over the years. Um, and... Um, I noticed that a few years later when he was a senior, um, he had become, uh, it seemed like a much different person. He um, actually, so he, the LGBTQ student group at, at Belmont University had been known as uh, bridge builders. They were trying to build bridges between the LGBTQ and Christian communities on campus. Um, and he started this more confrontational activist group during his senior year called Bridge Burners. And they wanted to um, really basically shake things up um, and um, uh, be much more confrontational and aggressive in challenging people's um, views about LGBTQ issues. Um, and I yeah, remembered uh, actually talking to him um, 
that year when he was a senior and he just seemed like a much uh, different person. Um, someone who was much, yeah, more outspoken about his views on LGBTQ issues. And um, he attributed that to, yeah, the the group he had been a part of and in, in which he kind of slowly feel like he outgrew, but he, he just felt like he was able to build a confidence about his own sexual identity and, and views on LGBTQ issues um, by getting involved in an LGBTQ group in college. You told us that your own background in uh, going to Christian schools was an evangelical background. Some of the schools that you name in the book are Catholic. Did you find when you went to campuses that were not Protestant that the problems that the students were encountering were basically the same? How how much difference and similarity did you find in how the students were facing discrimination and how they were uh, answering back to it? Yeah. Um... Yeah, it's an interesting question because a lot of people, and correctly so, think of Catholic colleges and universities as more inclusive, especially than evangelical Protestant schools. Um, in my own database, I see that the majority of Catholic colleges and universities in the United States do have non-discrimination policies inclusive of sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, but it's not every Catholic college and university. Um, I interviewed students at Catholic University of America um, which is kind of a unique school in the landscape of Catholic colleges and universities in the United States. It's the only Catholic university that received its charter from the Vatican. Um, and a lot of powerful higher-ups in the Catholic Church sit on the school's board, um, have influence at the school. And that school still today does not have um, uh, inclusive non-discrimination policies. Um, it doesn't have an LGBTQ student group. Weirdly enough, the school... Um, the school had um, a lesbian and gay student group in the 1980s, but um, the schools yeah, just slowly became more conservative and, and students don't have that outlet still today. And so, um, you know, it, the, the issues they face um, aren't exactly the same as the Protestant college and universities. There's a little more room within Roman Catholicism to, you know, assert a... Um, gay identity um, or LGBTQ identity, especially if you say you're going to remain celibate. There's, they make much, usually a much greater distinction between LGBTQ identities and then same-sex behavior, for example. But um, Catholic University of America otherwise, uh, overall, just doesn't look that much different than yeah, places like Sanford University, where I went. Um, but Loyola University Chicago is the other Catholic university I went to. It's a Jesuit school, um, and it is certainly uh, the most progressive school um, that I studied. Um, it has sexual orientation and gender identity in the non-discrimination statement. It has had an LGBTQ group since the 90s. Um, it has a pretty vibrant LGBTQ community on campus. Um, they have a, a drag ball, a drag show on campus. Um, but um, one of the reasons I studied it, that school is to kind of challenge people's notions about, um, you know, issues at supposedly progressive Catholic universities. Um, I show, for example, that when the state of Illinois passed a law legalizing same-sex marriage, Loyola Chicago very quickly passed a policy saying that only Catholic weddings, which they defined as being between heterosexual people, could be held on campus. Um and, you know, there were different issues students on campus face, like the drag show that they did 
pulled could not be in a public space. It had to be held in a private uh, room that no one could just kind of stumble upon if they weren't purposely going there. Um, there. There were just different kinds of issues that even students at the supposedly progressive place um, faced and uh, continue to face, I think, still today. You mentioned that you began this study as part of your dissertation. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And then you, you later turned it into a book and published it. Over that time period, did you see backslide on any of the schools? And how did it how long, I guess, was the time period from dissertation to uh, book? And were there backsliding that you saw happening in rights on campus just even in that period of time? Um, not really. Uh, I, I finished the dissertation. I defended it in 2016. And the book got published pretty quickly after um, in 2018. And uh, for the most part, things had gotten better at most campuses since I, you know, gathered data. Um, when, when I was um, out collecting data, um, another school we haven't really talked about is Goshen College. It's a Mennonite college in northern Indiana. When I had initially gone there, um, the school, it had an LGBTQ student group, but it didn't have non-discrimination policies, inclusive sexual orientation and gender identity. And and so it was uh, considered okay to be gay on that campus as a student. But if you were a faculty member or staff person who came out as, as LGBTQ, um, you would be fired. But um, around the time I was finishing my dissertation, that school did change its policies. And I think the school has just become even more progressive as time has, has gone on since the book's publication, partly because the Mennonite Church USA has, has, has also been undergoing a transformation toward LGBTQ inclusion. Uh, Belmont University, I think, has kind of continued to evolve um, with regard to LGBTQ rights. That's a Baptist university I, I studied for the book, uh, Baptist University in Nashville. Um, I, when I initially began studying that school, um, they had kicked a lesbian soccer coach uh, off campus. Um, they weren't allowing an LGBTQ student group. They didn't have inclusive policies. But by the time I um, published the book, they had a, adopted um, a non-discrimination policy, and at least inclusive of sexual orientation. They had approved an LGBTQ student group. Um, and I think, you know, in the years that have passed, they've even done things like um, they, they now provide um, uh, marital benefits for same-sex couples. They provide, you know, health insurance and other kinds of benefits for faculty and staff who are LGBTQ. Um, sometimes on the homepage of Belmont University's website, you'll see um, a photo of the Bridge Builders LGBTQ group. Like the school's not even trying to hide, you know, that it has an LGBTQ student group. So that school has gotten better. But I don't think Catholic University of America has, has changed much at all. Um, there's been very little progress there. And again, Loyola Chicago is still mostly um, a progressive place on paper, but is a place where students are kind of facing some informal challenges, including with the ability to have weddings on campus or the ability to um, ha have LGBTQ inclusive events in, in very public places. Um, it's, it's still um, kind of in the same place as it was when I finished the book. When you look at the places that have made changes for the better. How much of the impetus to change do you attribute to student activism? I think it's played a considerable role. Um, at Goshen College, um, you know, there was a huge open letter campaign that um, I, I just think was absolutely instrumental. 
in getting that school to uh, adopt more inclusive policies. Um, at Belmont University, I, I actually think that's the best example of a, a place where student activism was instrumental in, in that school's transformation. Because um, like I mentioned, uh, there was a lesbian soccer coach that was fired from campus and students very quickly organized sit-ins and rallies and protests. And those protests caught the attention of the national media, the New York Times, Sports Illustrated, and other national news outlets cover the protests. And um, I think the New York Times approached one of Belmont's biggest donors, a man named Mike Kerb, whose name was on um, the, the Belmont University's you know, uh, prominent school of music business. And um, when asked his opinion of, of the protest, Mike Kerb said something along the lines of, it's time for Belmont to change. Um, and he, I think he said something along the lines of, I swear if Belmont does not change its policies, I'll continue speaking out about this the rest of my life. Um, and very quickly after he said that, um, after this huge donor said that, uh, within a day or two, Belmont's uh, president came out um, uh, and said that they were adopting more inclusive policies and they would approve an LGBTQ student group. I, I think the student protests there were just absolutely instrumental um, in, in the policy changes at that school. But, you know, I, I remember um, at the time I was doing my um, interviews at Belmont, um, there's, there still wasn't a huge LGBTQ community. Um, and I remember in particular, I don't think I met any trans students um, this was in 2013 when I was doing my kind of final interviews for the dissertation. But I went back in um, 2018 or 2019 after my book came out and I spoke on campus and I met with the Bridge Builders group and it, it had become so much more vibrant than when I had been doing interviews there. And there were many trans students, non-binary students, um, also students of color who are part of the Bridge Builders group. And I, they had me give a, a university convocation lecture about my book, and it, it was in a big room. There, there were hundreds of people there who were just ecstatic, you know, uh, to be having a, a lecture about, you know, their university and about the, the LGBTQ, uh, the changes regarding LGBTQ issues at that university. Uh, and you can tell that there were just yeah, hundreds of students who were really kind of fired up and passionate about LGBTQ uh, rights issues, and and so I I um and I think a lot of that must have been attributable to yeah, just the ongoing activism of the Bridge Builder students there. You've talked about specific groups like Bridge Builders and Bridge Burners. Are the groups that you looked at grassroots to each particular college or university, or is there cross campus movement? Are they? Um, are they working together with other campuses? It's some of both. All, all the groups I read about are specific to their campus. Um, you know, the majority of Christian colleges nationwide now, I would say, have either official LGBTQ student groups. Um, about 47% have official uh, LGBTQ student groups or unofficial LGBTQ student groups. Um, there are certainly many schools, uh, like at Stanford, that um, don't have official groups yet, but have unofficial LGBTQ groups organizing on campus. 
So grassroots groups are very common, but there's a lot of national level organizing going on. Um, the Religious Exemption Accountability Project that I mentioned um, has a full-time organizer on its staff who is um, working with students to yeah, help them collaborate across campuses, uh, strategize across campuses. Um, there's actually going to, in, in October um, 22, in the month we're uh, speaking, there's going to be a national kind of walkout at Christian colleges and universities um, in support of LGBTQ inclusion. That's being organized by the Religious Exemption Accountability Project. Soul Force has, you know, over the years, um, been an organization that has worked across campuses um, to bring about LGBTQ inclusion. Um, and there have been other groups that have, have popped up as well. There are a lot of alumni networks that have um, popped up um, at different Christian, Christian colleges and universities. And, um, and and many leaders of these alumni groups are in, in conversation with each other. So yeah, there's some of both for sure. Grassroots activism specific to schools, but some cross-school organizing as well. What would you like to see going forward? Um, you know, I, I think this lawsuit filed by a religious exemption accountability project um, would really be bringing about, if it's successful, an important change at uh, across most Christian colleges and universities. Um, I, I would love to see the U.S. Supreme Court say that just like Christian colleges and universities cannot discriminate against race if they receive government loans, they should not discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity um, if they're receiving federal government money. Um, so I'd love to see that kind of policy change. Um, I would love, though, to also just see genuine, a genuine change of heart and a change of mind um, across the more conservative evangelical campuses. Um, because even if there are policy changes, as you know, that doesn't guarantee that the campus climates are going to change or that evangelical Christian denominations, which are largely discriminatory toward LGBTQ people, are going to change their theologies. Um, but I would love to see, um, I would love to see, yeah, just kind of a, a fundamental change of heart uh, among these more discriminatory Christian colleges and universities. Um, you know, I, I've also been involved lately in collecting data on Christian colleges and universities' historic discriminatory policies um, towards students of color. And it was only a few decades ago that so many Christian colleges and universities discriminated against students of color. They remained segregated. They um, denied admission to non-white students. And what people often forget is that a lot of Christian colleges and universities had the position that segregation was ordained by God. Actually, a lot of these schools had the position that slavery was ordained by God. To go back to my alma mater, Sanford University, its original funders and many of its original uh, leaders were slave owners. Sanford University itself enslaved someone. Uh, uh, there's now a statue dedicated to him on campus. Who, um, um, an enslaved person named Henry, who actually died saving students at a fire in that school. But Sanford University and many other schools used to have the position, used to read the Bible as saying that slavery and segregation was ordained by God. And they just thought, you know, anyone who's reading the Bible would come to this position as well. 
they, they just couldn't grasp the notion that um, people didn't read the Bible the same way they did. Um, but those attitudes changed. Um, those policies changed. And I just don't think it's out of the question that um, similar changes could happen at um, across evangelical Christian denominations um, as they continue to grapple with questions about LGBTQ identity and LGBTQ rights. I, I think it's still a, a ways off. Um, it's not going to happen overnight. Um, but you already see a lot of young evangelicals and a lot of young Christians coming out in support of LGBTQ rights um, and having rethought their original opinions about LGBTQ rights. And they may be change agents in the years to come. And finally, what do you hope this episode sparks for listeners? Well, I hope it um, certainly increases people's awareness about ongoing discrimination at hundreds of colleges and universities that is subsidized by the federal government. Um, People often miss that point. They think of Christian colleges and universities as private institutions that, um, you know, are able to discriminate simply because they're private, but they're also subsidized by the federal government. And I think um, we need to, to rethink policies like that. Um, I certainly hope it, um, um, continues to spark creative activism and encourage creative activism at Christian colleges and universities, including on the part of who I imagine um, uh, make up many of your listeners, which is faculty and staff at colleges and universities. Um, Faculty and staff at Christian colleges and universities have very important roles to play in um, changing the cultures of their campus and in supporting supporting activism on their campus. So I, I hope it um, some of your listeners who may be at discriminatory schools um, will, yeah, find the courage that you know my undergraduate mentors um, at Stanford found, um, and and be change agents at their schools. Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Jonathan Coley, and talking to us about your work and about your book, Gay on God's Campus. Mobilizing for LGBT Equality at Christian Colleges and Universities. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again.